I've never considered myself a nosy person. No more nosy than the next guy. I just have what my ma would call an unhealthy amount of curiosity. I was the kid who climbed to the top of the big oak in the backyard just to see what was in the crow's nest. I was the kid who dug a hole in the backyard so deep that I hit groundwater because I was convinced there was a cave under our house, and I wanted to see it. My folks aren't dirt poor, but they're pretty close. They're part of that missing middle of America, the people who work 40 hours a week until they die, with no savings to speak of. I got my first job at a horse stable when I was 14. It didn't last very long. I knew I needed to get a job because I knew we needed the money. So I bounced around for the next few years, washing dishes, waiting tables, until I graduated high school. Pop was really tough on me about college. He never went. Nobody in his family had. So there were a few fights about where I would go after school. It was a huge shock to me when, just after graduation, he drove me down to the uni. He'd been classmates with the dean and they'd come up with an arrangement where I'd get a full scholarship, provided I make good grades and worked for the university. I never felt like a scholar. In high school, I kept my head down and did enough to get by, pulling off B's and a few C's. I wasn't interested in learning, because learning wasn't interesting. Uni was different. I took mainly core classes, math, English, history, science, but they were fascinating. For one thing, nobody cared if I showed up or not. It was entirely up to me to succeed, so I did. In exchange for my education, I worked security and did some light maintenance duties. Maintenance was a no-brainer. I've always been handy, and most of the fix-it jobs were the type that could be solved with a liberal application of WD-40 or elbow grease or both. Security was a different story. Security gave me superpowers. The job itself was pretty easy. I got a uniform, a badge, a flashlight, and Ma gave me some keychain mace for my birthday. No, I didn't get a gun. They weren't allowed on campus anyway. I mostly worked nights and weekends and doubles during long holiday breaks. I was to walk around the full campus twice in a night, checking the labs, computer center, and library. The rest of my time was pretty much my own. There were two other guards, Jake and Al, but they worked different shifts from me. We had overlap nights on Wednesday nights, where we'd get together for about an hour to discuss any major events or changes. There might have been beer at those meetings, but I'm underage, and you can't prove anything. Jake worked mostly day shift, and Al worked swings and some overnights during the week. Jake was a younger guy, training to be on the local police force, so he took his job pretty seriously. On the other hand, I'm pretty sure Al mostly slept during his shifts. Al was two years older than dirt, so he deserved his rest. Remember that bit about superpowers. My first night on the job, Al gave me a huge keychain with about a thousand keys on it. It weighed nearly five pounds and was secured to my belt with a heavy-duty metal chain. 
Don't lose that keychain, kid, Al said. You got the keys of the kingdom right there. Any door that don't open, you don't want to go in it. My work hobby, the thing that kept me awake on those long, cold winter break nights, was exploring. I made it a point every night to open some door that I'd never opened before. I started in the new section, where the library and computer center were, opening each room, each closet, making a map in my head of where everything was. Some nights, I might explore two or three rooms. Some nights, I might not have time for anything more than an odd out-of-the-way broom closet. The uni is actually a pretty large campus for having a full student body of only 12 or 1300. It was built as a Methodist college in 1896 and became state-owned in the 30s. There were three main sections. The old school housed the administration offices and a few unlucky classrooms, unlucky due to the lack of central heat and air, and the three-story building had no elevators. The labs were a brutalist horror of poured concrete slabs and tiny windows built back in the 70s when buildings that looked like Soviet radiators were in style. The new library was steadily losing its new, built in the late 90s boom and made in that unique red brick and glass style like everything else during those years. When I think back to those early days, those days before. I think how stupid I was. How naive. I should have thought about winter. I should have thought about the solstice. By December of my sophomore year of college, I had cleared every room in the new library. I had opened every door, checked every closet, and had a good mental map of the whole building. It was, ultimately, pretty unimpressive. I found no buried treasure, no secret stash of missing computer supplies cached in a forgotten closet. I did find a small, sweaty stack of bad porno mags in a supply closet in the basement level. Wicked, wicked cowgirls. Who was I to judge? December was a slow time for the uni. After the mad rush of finals, the campus was suddenly deserted, and the remaining few staff seeming lost. The building stood silent and dark in the thin winter breezes. We had a steady series of snowstorms, but none bad enough to close the campus. I made sure the sidewalks were clear and the entryways salted, and otherwise tried to stay indoors. Besides, I had the old school to explore. The main old school building, Downing Hall, was a four-story, V-shaped building. It had no elevators, tiny stairwells, and was only exempted from ADA compliance due to its historical importance. It had no air conditioning save for sporadic window-mounted units that were only permitted to be installed on the rear of the building, so as not to spoil the building's historic charm. The building's heat came from a massive, ancient boiler in the basement. As far as I knew, Al was the only person who knew anything about the boiler. 
and he must have kept it in good shape, because I never heard of any complaints about it. I spent the second week after finals week poking around the top floors of Downing Hall. I didn't have a lot of time for exploring every night, as the snow gave me more than usual upkeep chores, but I made steady progress. I discovered a small room in the attic on the left wing that must have been an old dean's office, complete with a beautiful antique desk and wardrobe. I checked both, thinking I might find something historic to give to the dean, but the wardrobe was empty, save for a moth-eaten wool scarf, and the desk's contents were limited to a few old newspapers and some tax forms from the 1950s. A level below, on the building's fourth floor, I found two dozen small, empty classrooms. In my handyman mindset, I checked the windows for loose glass panes and for water or rodent damage. I fully expected to see rat droppings or at least some insect damage, but I found none. The second and third floors were much the same, except the rooms on the rear of the building were air-conditioned and thus actively used for classes when school was in session. The main floor was administration and included the dean's office. I thought it wise not to snoop around in my boss's office or in payroll, so I skipped a lot of these rooms. I made my way to the stairwell of the basement, used my superhero keychain, opened the heavy door, and went down. The basement of Downing Hall was different from that of the new library. For one thing, it was a lot more cramped. The hallway was narrow and the ceiling was low, with doorways leading off at regular intervals. I checked every room, flipping the old two-button switches to on, using my flashlight on the dark corners. I had carried a few packs of spare light bulbs, the fancy new CFC bulbs, in my satchel, thinking to replace any that had burned out and save the environment while I was at it. The little rooms mostly contained junk, Spare desks, filing cabinets full of 40- and 50-year-old papers, old holiday decorations, and so forth, lit by naked hanging bulbs. I'm not an imaginative kind of guy. I guess I'm pretty smart. I'd made straight A's in my college courses. It never occurred to me to be scared. I didn't think I'm alone in a creepy old basement. This this was my place, my job, my hobby, and it all seemed so normal. By the night of the 20th of December, I had made my way to the boiler room. The furnace was a massive monstrosity of iron and rivets, pipes and gauges. It was hellishly hot in that room, and equally loud. It was, however, neat and very clean, Al kept it that way because he said a clean boiler lets you get more shut-eye. The furnace had been converted from coal to gas at some point, but the soot had stained the walls of the room and the old coal chute still opened in one of the corners. I had no intention of giving the boiler room more than a glance. I'd been there dozens of times and there was nothing to see, just a workbench and the furnace itself. 
when I noticed a small door to the back and left behind the furnace. That's weird, I thought to myself. I had never seen that door before. But then again, I had never stood in that particular spot beside the workbench, and I had never really looked. The door was smaller than a normal door. Maybe five feet tall, painted in the same non-colored drab gray-brown of the walls, and was made of metal, just like the other doors in the basement. I went over to the door and touched the handle. I think the body knows sometimes when things are wrong. Have you ever had that feeling like you're being watched? When you know you're totally alone, and nobody can see you, but you feel eyes on you. Have you ever gone left instead of right? Because you got a feeling that you just shouldn't go to the right today. It didn't work that way for me. When I touched that doorknob, nothing felt any different. My head didn't hurt. My neck hairs didn't stand up. And I didn't hear an inner voice saying, don't do it. The doorknob turned, but the door wouldn't open. I looked more closely and I saw a small keyhole. I checked the magic keychain and found three possible matches. Struck out on the first two, and the third worked, of course. Of course. The hinges squealed like they hadn't been used in a long time. Decades. My handyman instincts noted it. WD-40, I mumbled. I hauled open the door and stepped through into another small, cramped hallway. The light switch worked, and the single bulb blew with a crack. Damn it. My hackles did raise then. I flicked on my flashlight and quickly swapped out the hallway bulb with a new one. I looked around and saw this hallway was narrow, straight, and ended a few yards away at another door. I flicked on my flashlight and quickly swapped out the hallway bulb with a new one. I looked around and saw this hallway was narrow, straight, and ended a few yards away at another door. That door opened easily, onto another stairway. What the hell? I said. Nobody had ever mentioned a sub-basement for this building. The hairs on the back of my neck were still standing out. I shook it off as nerves from the blown bulb and walked to the stairwell. It was a standard stairwell and looked pretty much the same as the others in the building. I walked to the bottom and met another door. I pushed through it to see another long, narrow hallway with doors leading off to either side at regular intervals. The first door to my left was unlocked and opened fairly easily onto a storage closet. There were stacks of late 60s era books, a few desks, and a decaying mop in its bucket. The door across from it was unlocked, but did not open so easily. I hauled the door open to find a larger room that looked to have been used as a classroom. There were desks, a blackboard, anatomical diagrams, and posters on the walls. Everything was covered in an inch of dust and appeared not to have been touched in a very long time. Why would anyone put a classroom down here? I mumbled to myself. How would they even convince students to get down here in the first place? 
I remember thinking at that point that I must have somehow discovered a back way into the other wing of the V-shaped downing hall. Maybe this is where the old science classes were held before the labs were built. I moved on to the next set of rooms. They were both classrooms, abandoned, dust-covered, and mostly empty. So were the next pair and the next. I saw a total of 12 disused classrooms in that hallway and a small break room complete with a lonely coffee pot. I also found two small restrooms. I didn't spend much time checking them out as the lights didn't work and I didn't feel like replacing those bulbs. Now I found myself getting slightly nervous. I was in a strange section of the campus and I was working alone that night. In the back of my mind, I just couldn't truly justify the existence, the waste, of a whole floor full of unused classrooms. When I got to the end of the hallway, I met another steel door. I opened it and saw another stairwell. I was fully expecting this stairwell to go up, to connect to one of the other main stairwells in Downing Hall. The stairs only went down. This was the point I remember at which I began to get scared. No way. There's no way these stairs go down. How would anyone get down here? Down here? The stairwell echoed at me. I should have checked the time. I should have been concerned with finishing my rounds. I should have been hungry for lunch. I should have run. I started to climb down the stairs. This stairwell was unlit and appeared to be much older and in much worse condition than the others. It was also longer, much longer. After a few minutes of walking down the steps, I began to count them. At every 12 steps, there was a small landing, a turn, and another set of steps down. After 10 landings, I reached another door. It was unlocked and opened easily. The hinges squealed and the echoes died like lost things in the dark. I groped against the left wall for a light switch and there was none. I checked the right and the wall was equally smooth. I cast the flashlight around but saw nothing. Nothing forward, nothing to either side, nothing above. I snapped my fingers, listening for the echo. I may or may not have heard one. I slowly came to realize that the room into which I had entered was enormous, cavernous, possibly the biggest room I had ever physically experienced. I shrank back to the doorway for a moment. This room can't be here, I said to myself. I started to think about going back. But... I also started to think about wanting to know what was in there. I took a step forward and another until I was walking steadily into the room. I kept a steady pace, counting my steps. I looked over my shoulder every few yards using the light from the open doorway to orient myself. I walked slowly for a hundred yards. 200 yards until I saw a dim glow ahead. The glow got faintly brighter 
and larger as I walked toward it. Another hundred yards, and another, and three more passed until I could make out a small, dim light bulb near a door. That door was of a different type entirely. It was huge, 14 feet tall at least, and half again as wide. The surface was black metal, studded with rivets and bolts mounted on huge hinges. Across the face of the door, graved into the metal, were words in some strange looping script that I could not recognize. Every surface was carved with that script, or with some strange diagrams made of splayed, circle-ended lines. In the center of the door was a large, spoked wheel lock, and in the center of the lock was a tiny keyhole. Above the keyhole was a sigil, enclosed in three circles. I looked behind me and could not see the light from the stairwell. I couldn't see anything at all. I held the superhero keychain to the dim light and flipped through the keys. Of course, there was one small battered key that looked as if it might fit. I inserted it into the lock and turned it. I heard a click and a thud and a sound from within the door like pouring pebbles or dry teeth. I pulled the key from the lock and grasped the spokes of the wheel lock. My heart was racing and sweat was dribbling into my eyes. I turned the spokes to the left, counterclockwise, witter shins, some buried memory in my head said, and kept turning until the wheel stopped. There was another thud and a crack, and then silence. The darkness behind me no longer felt empty. In fact, it felt positively crowded, as if I had an audience watching me. I stepped back from the door and flashed my light around. Still nothing. Dry, empty floor. I turned back to the door, grasped the large cast-iron handles, and pulled. Nothing. I tried harder, putting all of my weight into the pull, and at the last moment, at the end of my strength, I heard another crack, and the door groaned open on a draft of cool, stinking air. The smell was heavy, moist, and musky. I had a flash memory of my mother taking me to the zoo as a child, and the smell of the cat house with the lions. At the thought of the lions, I let go of the handles and stumbled back a bit. I carefully shone my light into the yawning black crevice of the open door. I saw a short hallway that opened into a small, cramped room. I saw a filthy, rusted metal chair. I saw bones. Small bones. I saw, or heard, or smelled, a form so black it seemed to suck in the light of my flashlight. I saw a black form rushing towards me 
running towards me, filling the hallway, howling and laughing and speaking in a voice that sounded like mountains collapsing. I remember fangs and words that turned my bones into rusted glass. I remember feathers and a hand with too many fingers, jeweled with something unspeakable, and the smell, the stink of something long, long caged. I remember wings. I don't know how long I wandered in the dark, alone under hundreds of feet of rock. There was no light. There was no way to judge time. My flashlight was dead. And my cell phone and even the small specks of luminescent paint on my cheap wristwatch were dark. There was something wrong with my right leg. It hurt, but I couldn't see enough to find out why. I kept hearing my audience there in that cavernous room. I screamed at them. I felt one of them touch my face, and I threw my flashlight at it. The flashlight bounced and rattled and became still, somewhere that I was not. Something laughed later. I raved and screamed, but didn't throw anything else. I found the doorway after hours or days of crawling. There were no lights in the stairwell. After years of climbing, I crawled into that first forgotten hallway. I sliced my fingers on the crushed remains of the light bulbs I had packed in my satchel. I crawled down the hallway and reached the next stairwell. I hauled myself up them and finally out into the boiler room. When I staggered out of Downing Hall two full days after going in, it was into dim winter daylight and a full police presence. Five people had been found dead on and around the campus. All had been brutally, savagely murdered. Bodies splayed open, viscera missing. The teeth marks suggested a wild animal. But the murder scenes and body positioning also displayed a certain intelligence to them. There was also the writing carved into the flesh when it was not yet dead meat. The cops wouldn't talk about the writing. Cops wouldn't talk to me either. Not afterwards. When they first saw me stumble out into daylight, covered in blood, they assumed I was a perpetrator. They quickly changed their assumptions when the medics pointed out the green stick fracture, the dehydration, the concussion, and the obvious shock. The cops asked a lot of questions, and I answered as best I could. I told them about the door in the boiler room. They couldn't find it. They showed me the bare smooth wall from where I'd crawled, dazed and broken. My tracks stopped at that wall. Two cops tried breaking through the wall in that spot, only to meet old brick and older earth past that. The cops wanted to know where the long black feathers came from, stuck to my clothes by dried blood. I didn't know. I didn't want to know. The cops, the medics, nobody would look at me anymore. The scars on my face, the deep, 
gouged-out writing was not a sight that most would want to see. I was marked. Whatever I had let out, whatever had killed and eaten five people, and a week later six more, had marked me as a friend. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Penny Blood Podcast. I'm your co-host, Logan. And I am your other co-host, David Snyder. Man, I love this story. It's, it's a pretty good one. It's uh, definitely different than the Coyotes one that we, uh, that we listened to before. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, st- we'll start with the, uh, the usual question, though. Hey, Logan, how, how does this? story factor into or rather sorry i should say series of stories exactly how does how does this fit in with penny bloods well i'm so glad you asked because i think that this has a, a hero or or an anti-hero or some sort of character the the main protagonist in this story i think shows up again in this series so we have our penny blood character there and Double, double trouble because we get a uh, creature as well. Definitely so. I mean, like, and also I really enjoy that you uh, mention and clarify that this, the main character is not a hero, <laughs> he's, but he's not a villain either, right? No. He's just kind of this victim. <laughs> right. And, and he is, he has enough agency where I feel like you could still call him a protagonist. Of course. But yeah, you're right. He doesn't he doesn't do anything. This isn't a D&D delve into a basement. Right. No. He does not know what he is in for. And I really enjoy that, you know, there there is that turn. There is that moment where things turn to Wait a second. I I didn't notice that door there. What's that doing there? Right. Right. Cuz up until then we're in the world that he's familiar with and he enjoys and I like the description of the college and how he's doing well in school and how he actually likes his job. Um, one of my pet peeves in a story is when we're reading a story and there's a lot of them out there where the protagonist just instantly starts to complain about their situation. Of course, of course. Like they're like they're itching for an adventure or they, they want something desperately to happen. And then but at the same time when when that thing usually happens, it just happens to that character, I've noticed. I've noticed in those in those stories because they're usually like kind of lower quality where the, the, the hero is not really actually doing anything to further the story. Everything in the story is just happening to them. And I really enjoy that this guy, you know, that's true. He, he does count as a protagonist, I think, uh, insofar as uh, he is investigating, doing, doing that classic Lovecraftian thing where it's right. just, if you investigate, you can, the door is there and you have the keys for it. But if you do, oh, heaven help you <laughs> well, and there's there's some really good setup for that setup yeah. on payoff in this story is really good yeah because when the older guy the older facilities guy gives him that key ring oh yeah he says you have the keys to the kingdom don't lose these 
And if there's a door that this doesn't open, you don't belong there. Don't open it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but he does have the key for this place, right? right? So you you know, it makes me wonder does the old man know that there's something down there? Oh, without a doubt. I would say like without a doubt. And that's probably why I think if you remember back, it has the battered key. The battered key is the one that, that opens like the door. I, th I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of want this like backstory, you know, this little prequel of the old man where he's just like, I don't want this key on here, but right. I wonder if it's like, you know, maybe it's like some kind of a curse where he's just like, no, I, I can't take it off. I can't take this thing off. It's one of those items where he does throw it away and it just shows back up. The <laughs> next day. Yeah. Shows back up on the key. No, you are the, you know what? I, I do want to see the, uh, you know, and, and see, this is the thing, uh, just to let the audience know, I, I didn't know that this was part of a wider series. Logan did. He knows that the, the main, character of this story does show back up later on however the old man does not so i haven't read everything that this author's wrote which by the way we should have started there let's thank the author yeah uh he is reddit user unxmaal and actually uh that apparently is the title of this series isn't it yeah un an axle cycle, however you would say that. I do look forward to reading more of the series as we go along. Because once again, there are various Penny Dreadfuls that also had, you know, series where you'd see this character once again, you know. And, and I really do enjoy, you know, even in, uh, uh, I know that we keep on going back to Lovecraftian series as You well, can't avoid it with this story. It's, it's true. It's true. There's so many Lovecraftian, you know, uh, uh, elements to it. It's, it's very true. I, I really enjoy the, um, the recurring character that we're going to find here and, and elsewhere. Uh, there is a, a creature, though, speaking of creatures, the one here is a very particular odd description, mm -hmm. if, you'll, if you'll say that, but and we're going to get there for sure. I I want to talk about this creature. Definitely. No, we can we can we can talk about it definitely. Um you because you mentioned to me that there is a a Lovecraftian creature that looks very close to this. I think this guy sounds like a Bayaki, which was added to the Lovecraftian mythos after Lovecraft died. And I want to say it was actually Sandy Peterson's creation who writes a lot of the stuff for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, which we've really enjoyed before. And, um, but yeah, a Bayaki, a Bayaki is this like beastly, insecty, all claws, all teeth. It, it does fly. And I don't know if I'm misreading the story, but it seems like if this creature at the end of the story can't fly, it at least moves like quickly, you know? It does seem to, yes. And it has intelligence. And so Bayakis are known to have a certain amount of intelligence. They work together and they can even work for a wizard or a bad guy, you know, who's serving the mythos in, in the game. So they're not animals. And this thing is not just an animal. No, definitely not. Definitely not. It definitely does have some uh, some intelligence, and 
you know, that's, that's kind of another thing that I wanted to get to with the, uh, with the door, um, with the writing on it. And it's not just like writing. I think he said that it was, it, it, he described it in a very particular way to, which, which makes, which leads me to believe that, you know, once again, going for the, um, all of these Lovecraftian civilizations that you run into with, you know, various hieroglyphics and, and, you know, uh, various writings, it makes me wonder, you know, was this, was this kind of just like a prison? Was it a prison or was it like a deal or why was this thing in there? And I kind of would, I, I would love to see, you know, more about it or if, if, you know, the old man knows more about this, what does he know? Does he know the, uh, the actual writing, what it means? And that's part of what makes a great story is that it leaves you wanting more. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. There's, there's questions that I have and it makes me want to know more. It makes me want to read more. Definitely. But at the same time, it's kind of the mark of a good author, in my opinion, that oh, yeah. he doesn't, he's confident enough not to answer all of our questions. He's confident enough to just let some things be a mystery. And that's what's so tantalizing about the story. But we're like, we're jumping all over the place. We're excited about this one. But to kind of back up and to kind of walk people through the story, our protagonist, who I believe just remains nameless, like I think so, like the protagonist in the last story, he gets a job at a college as part of how he's going to pay for things going to those classes. His dad knows the dean. And so all of these things, right? The fact that his dad went to college there, his dad knows the dean now, it's where he works and goes to classes. This feels safe. This feels like home base. Definitely. And I really like the fact, like I mentioned before, this protagonist doesn't start off complaining. He likes his life right now. Yes. And I think that we're drawn to characters like that who get pulled into an adventure forcefully. It, it's a lot like Bilbo where yeah. Bilbo was totally fine, totally content, didn't know about a Dark Lord, didn't know about no rings or dragons, and didn't need a bunch of dwarves coming to his house. But Gandalf sort of just like picks Bilbo and is like, he, he's the man for the job. So Gandalf shows up, and drags Bilbo on this adventure. Right. And at the beginning of The Hobbit, and I'm, you see it a little bit in the movies, but I'm talking more about the book. Bilbo is reluctant to leave his house. He's, sure. But by the end of that, he's a hero, and we can relate better to that kind of setup, I think. And that's, that's what you have here. You have a guy who's comfortable at the college, comfortable with his job, likes his life, and has this little game that he plays, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, like the, with Penny Bloods, just, you know, in general, you do, you, you find that a lot of Penny Bloods uh, are, you know, they, they feature a character that's just like you or me. And that's kind of how they were originally, you know, supposed to draw people in, weren't they? Is that it would, it would feature someone who could be you and this, this could happen to you. You could end up, you know, turn a dark alley and then there's spring Heel Jack. And <laughs> what, are you, what are you gonna do about that? And, you know, it just, it, it really did play on the uh, old industrial era fears of the big city, you don't know who it is, who's next to you, lives next to you, might be listening in on whatever it is that you're doing, all of these suspicions. And yeah, with, with, this, uh, with this story, the main character, he is. He's just one of those people who's just 
Like, like I, I know of at least one of my high school friends who, who grew up and, and who did that, who, who was just a, a janitor at their old church and, you know, they, they get paid a little bit, mm-hmm. but all they have to do is they just go around, you know, all the doors, check everything is, is okay. I mean, of course, n- none of them ever, um, as far as I know, found a door leading <laughs> to, to a Lovecraftian uh, uh, building. But there's you know. got to be some. <laughs> there's got to be some good creepypastas out there about doors in churches too. We'll have to find those. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, like we, I have you know, in in my own. Now that you mentioned churches, my old church, um, it was it, it had one of those smaller doors. That was kind of like, I think like five feet tall and not very wide, but it was always one of those doors where I just, I, as a kid, because, you know, I, I grew up in the church. I, I just, every once in a while, I'd walk by that door and say, man, there must be this like crazy portal <laughs> to wherever dimension and like, who knows what creatures could, you know, be in there. Yeah. Oh man. I agree. And the size of the door jogs my memory. I had a couple of things that I wanted to say, and I'm trying to say both at the same time, so I need to back up. It's okay. <laughs> but no, I agree that the sight of a small door in a room like that can really excite the imagination. And you, your point about the small door in your church reminded me of one of the details in the story is he talks about how some of the older buildings are not ADA compliant. Right. And because of the work that I do. Yeah, what is ADA compliance? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, welcome to your podcast within a podcast where we talk about building design. But <laughs> but they uh, uh ADA is accessibility for the disabled. It's the ramps that you see instead of just always having stairs and it is wider doors. And so older buildings were allowed to have skinnier doors with only stairs and didn't have that accessibility. ADA compliance also pertains a lot of times to hallways and rooms themselves and bathrooms and things like that. And so when he describes the older building not being ADA compliant, it's sort of a way of the author sharing with us that the building's a little bit claustrophobic. The, the doors are allowed to be narrower the corridors might not have to be as wide. And when you close in walls in a corridor, uh, it can have the illusion of just making you feel even closed in. Like even if it does have a high ceiling, you might feel like that ceiling's not as high. And so, yeah, in modern building design, we build things a lot more open, a lot more wide, a lot more room for people because we've just found that it means less people get hurt and stuck in an emergency situation as well. So. Which, you know, also uh, uh, on the note of the uh, size of the corridors and everything, I really do enjoy that there is that one moment where, you know, the main character, he's just like, oh, you know, old man Al, you know, told me to, to, to open 
uh, only the or to only go in the doors uh, uh, that that you know I sh- I should <laughs> you know go into and then, oh if if you know and, but then it just opens into this massive gallery and he said like what is it is cavernous and it and his voice echoes and he feels like he's never been in a room that big before it's true and so I love this like everything is so so closed you know and and so very claustrophobic as you said before mm-hmm. and then it just opens into this massive thing where now he is the smallest <laughs> and so we're covering both fears yes right we're we're covering the claustrophobia as things start to close in and then you get to that space where he's in this void and you've got that fear now where he feels exposed he feels like he doesn't even know if he'd be able to like if he leaves the wall is he going to be able to find his way back yeah you know or yeah. is he just going to get lost in the darkness but at that point there is kind of a pool of course you know and so you know last time we talked about in the local coyote story we talked about the transition into the weird yes so the transition the transition into the weird in this story is when he sees the door that he'd never seen before yes right yeah out of the corner of his eye and he says oh i didn't notice that before right right and so once you're walking down the stairs and once you're in this cavernous room, we're in the weird world. Definitely. And he, and he makes a note of that, too, because he sees classroom, you know, stuff, you know, stuff, you know what does he say? Anatomical posters mm-hmm. and things and, and, you know, various. And he says, why would there be a classroom here? Right. And it's just it's one of those things. No, you're in the weird world, dude. You are. <laughs> and, and there's a moment, too, where he says, this can't be here. Right. Like, he realizes that he's been walking down for so long and stairs also. Right. You know, they're, they're angled, so he's walking forwards and down. Yes. And he realizes the building's not this wide. I'm not under the building anymore. Right. Yeah. I'm not under the building. How far underground am I? How is this huge room down here? Yet he goes on. He does. Oh, of course. The and horror we thank story him for it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but he does the horror story trope of, well, I've come this far. Right, right. Well, and he's he, he says that. Well, there's that, there's that thing, the the that voice telling you, hey, don't do that, don't go there, and he's just like, well. This was one of those rare times when my voice wasn't working, right? <laughs> and he just goes in. Although, you know, I, I do have to note, I do have to note, now that I'm, you know, rereading it uh, a, a little bit, passage here and there, I mean, old man Al did say, you know, you got, key, you got the keys to the kingdom right there. Any door that don't open, you don't want to go in it. But at the same time, there's those keys, and the door did open. And so I don't know now. It, now it kind of you know paints this Al, this old man Al, in a kind of more sinister light. I think because now I'm just like, okay, so like, is this a curse where it's just he can't get rid of the keys no matter how hard he tries? I I, I wonder. You know what? Is there gonna be like a moment where the main character goes up to Al and he's just like, hey, um. There's a door. Do you know about this door? And I wonder if Al is going to say back, like, oh, I thought I got rid of those keys. Like, he's going to have, like, this moment where he's just like, I thought I got rid of those keys. I I swear I did. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is one of the greatest things about getting to do this with somebody because when I first read the story, I really never even gave old man a second thought, you know? And you've really brought him up in my mind and brought him into kind of a more prominent part of the story than I ever thought, but you're right. 
that's that setup and payoff that we were talking about before. It yes. definitely sets you up for th- those keys to mean something earlier in the story. And then they do. Right. And he doesn't force open a door. He right. has the key. He has the key. He goes down the stairs. And then there's, then there's the other door. Of course, right, yes. The door. And I don't remember. That's, that's the door with the writing on it that you mentioned. Yeah. But does he have the key to that door? What happens he there? He does. He do- that's the battered key, uh, if I remember right. Um, and that's the one that, that takes, you know, so much effort to, to, to open. But, I mean, again, it, it has these, these, you know, this writing on it. And it's of a, obviously of a language that he doesn't know. Of course, that's fine. Got to prep that comprehend languages spell. Right. No, of course. Right. Exactly. Get those enchanted glasses where you can read all writing. <laughs> Definitely so. <laughs> now it's, it's, uh, I, I do, I wonder, you know, why they had that creature down there, you know, it, I, and I wonder if, who knows about it or if this has just been one of those things where it's like, well, very, very long time ago, the building was used for something else and it was built and rebuilt and built over numerous, numerous times, and now it's just forgotten. And so now nobody, except for Old Man Al, possibly, yeah. knows what this is. I'd love it because you mentioned when he's walking, you know, in the upper levels of this, and he's like wondering why there would be classrooms this far underground and stuff, and he sees some classroom things. I'd love it if this was like reinterpreted as a horror game or something yeah where if you explore a little bit further than he did maybe you find some sketches of whatever this creature is you find atomical drawings of it instead and you just don't know what it is or you find you find some scientist's journal and it's not a classroom but there was actually a lab maybe they were trying to figure out what this thing is but this whole setting fits perfectly into something that i would make a Call of Cthulhu yes. campaign out of. Call of Cthulhu characters are not like D&D characters. They're not born heroes. They're not paladins. They don't have spells or whatever. Right. And so your question always is, well, how does a regular security guard or a librarian yep. or a professor get pulled into the weird? How do they end up fighting the mythos? Well, this is how. You don't fight. You survive. <laughs> you survive. That's, the that's it. Yeah. That's, that's the best thing that you can hope for. <laughs> survive <laughs> with, your, with your mind intact. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say any spoilers because I know, I, I know some more of the stories in the series. This guy, he uses his brain. He, he's, nice. a, he's a cool character. He's able to hold his own against uh, some, some things. He, he learns some hard lessons, though, along the way. And you're right. Uh, a less lucky person might have just perished dude i mean like and that's you know that's usually what happens is that it's just dumb luck that that you know <laughs> either that or the thing that you're encountering doesn't even pay attention to you true and it just wants to live its life you know obviously not here because it's no. just like <laughs> okay and so this this gets into one of my favorite parts of the story um because so you're right he 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 has to use some effort, but he has the battered key. He opens his door. Right. And then the description here is just chaotic. We don't get a precise description of this creature. Which I love. I love that it's imprecise. Right. So don't tell. This this guy does it well. Well, and and when you come across something like, were we to come across anything like that, <laughs> I'm fairly certain that all I'd be like, oh, 
it was unmentionable and this is is just it had wings i know that and it and i i've started hurting i don't know why and there were claws it's and, true and and i think it was laughing screeching while screeching sounds <laughs> exactly like it's it's just chaotic for this poor guy and the thing overpowers him easily easily yeah and you know he sort of does and we're sorry guys but it's going to come up you know when when it needs to it'll come up but this is another lovecraftian thing where there's sort of then this blackout and this passage of time oh definitely yeah lovecraft always had his protagonists faint at the most inopportune moments like you know the curtain comes down they come face to face with this horror and Oh, I got the vapors. You know? Right, yeah, exactly. You just swoon, you just swoon. Well, and you know what? Again, something that chances are. I mean, like, I can't say 100% that I would because I've never been in that situation. Oh my goodness, knock on wood. Hopefully I never get into that. <laughs> but if I ever did and I saw, you know, came face to face with like, you know, not even just like an elder god, you know, the big one. No, like just a star spawn. Or something, just or be be you know be Akio. Just a just a just amigo would be exactly. enough to undo you. Yeah, I would just no. I you know I would not. I probably I might I might. There's a non-zero chance that I'd faint, <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, I come I come to and I'm not eaten. That's good. <laughs> right. So this guy does come to. Yes. And he's being helped. Yes. He yeah. says he doesn't remember exactly how he climbs back up all the stairs how long it takes it takes like was it hours or days or years you know and there were other people that were hurt and didn't survive Killed. not so lucky yeah exactly not just like and not just and i i do enjoy that he does go into those you know uh grisly details unfortunate but like yeah because this creature, I do consider, would. If it's so easily overpowering this guy, I don't consider that he's a, he's a you know, weak-looking guy. I'm considering that, uh, yeah, he probably, you know, maybe he is, you know, he has, he has some muscle on him, muscle on him. He, he could hold his own in a fight. Mm -hmm. And it overpowers him so easily, but marks him as friend <laughs> for letting it out. Yeah. And then now it just goes on this feeding frenzy. Of and, course. And what a great last line, too. Oh, dude, definitely. We were talking earlier today about yes. other stories where you can have a great story, but sticking the landing is the, sometimes the toughest part of writing. Oh, definitely. You can have a great idea. You can have this great creature. You can know how your character is going to get there and what's going to happen. But tying the knot at the end and, yeah. and just putting that last sentence and putting the period and calling it good, knowing when to call it quits. That's a hard thing to do. But right. this story ends with the perfect last sentence. And isn't it just, just that cherry on top that when I read this, you mentioned that you could do like a Call of Cthulhu campaign on this. And I think that is exactly the kind of hook that I would give to my players is saying, Look, okay, so we have, you know, numerous deaths. There's, there's about a dozen, dozen people who have been either hurt or killed by this thing. Mm -hmm. Ten or so of these people have, have died. And in this grisly way, in the past just few days, past week, and the one survivor has this carved into his flesh 
that it marked him, he says, as a friend. He is your first contact. Yeah. Talk to him and investigate. Yeah. And then, so there was the writing that we can't read, right? This creature has a language of its own, or like you said, maybe that was some sort of prison for it. So that's some sort of like runes or something that's yes. keeping it imprisoned. Sure. But this thing knows English. Well, it's so so this is the thing. This is what I this is why I get from that is that it had marked him as friend, but I think that that is his conclusion. Okay. I don't consider that the thing had, you know, written in English friend. Okay. But I think especially after hearing how brutally those other people have been just eaten <laughs> devoured partially of course but i after hearing something like that okay this is what it encountered uh this is what uh, other people experienced when they encountered it and this is what you experienced when you encountered it i would say that okay like i don't care like what particularly it carved i'm just going to consider okay it must have marked me as friendly because it didn't kill me. It didn't eat any part of me. <laughs> so it's not the word friend. Yeah. In your reading, it's just like a cattle brand. Possibly so. <laughs> I, you know what? Possibly so. Yeah. And it's probably just to, to, as a thank you, to be like, hey, thanks for letting me come out and feed. You opened the door. <laughs> it's true. You, you investigated where you shouldn't have. That's, that's naughty on you. But you let me out. So kudos. <laughs> It's a good point, and it's a good story. It's a good series, it sounds like. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, so let us know if uh, you listeners want to hear more from our friend Eric Dodd. Yeah, and once again, I do personally want to uh, read more of these or perform more of these stories because it's, it's so true. We're talking about modern-day Penny Bloods, modern-day Penny Dreadfuls. This sounds like it fits that bill 100% to a T. We'll have to get into it. I don't remember the name of the story right now because I read it years ago, but Eric Dodd in this series wrote one of my favorite haunted house stories. Very nice. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it's, you know, there's so many haunted house stories out there. How do you make something like that new and fresh? I think he figured it out. Very nice. I, you know, once again, now, of course, uh, just to tell the, the listeners, very likely we will not be posting that next story in the series for the next episode. However, we are going to get to it, or, you know, rather, I hope that we're going to get to it. I look forward to it. Yeah. I don't know what's on the docket for next week, but we'll find something else for you. We will definitely find something else. And I, I look forward to performing whatever it is. Or we're saying week. I don't even know if we're going to release this once a week. Oh, it's, you know, how, you know, whenever, whenever we release it, whenever we release it. If, if you, the listener, uh, have a particular story that you really, really would love for uh, me to perform and for us to review, please reach out to us. Our, our website and information, our contact information will be in the description. Besides that, I think it is time to wrap up. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us once again. It's great to read these things by yourself, but it's so much better to have a group to do it with, right? There's some safety in numbers, maybe. There is safety in numbers. I have been David Snyder, co-host and reader of this story. And I've been Logan Reed. Thank you for listening. 
We hope you had a bloody good time.